Today we're kicking off a new series called Parables, these little stories with major impacts. And it's, it's a great, great five-week series we're going to be doing. And anybody a fan of stories? Just, you like stories. I love stories. I'm a story person, um, especially as a kid. I loved them, but even more as an adult, a good story just draws me in. Uh, many of you know I like to read, so I read handfuls of fiction books every single year because I think that God likes creativity and I enjoy it and it just kind of makes sometimes I like when stories grab my heart and I'm not just reading to understand something or learn something but I'm just reading to enjoy there's a difference you know what I mean and a couple of years ago I read a book called a man called Uve or Ove, or depending on how you pronounce it it's O-V-E but it was a wonderful wonderful book I, I absolutely loved it and then I learned that they came out and they made a movie of it that was on Netflix called A Man Named or A Man Called Otto. And I was like, well, I like Otto better. I can pronounce that one correctly. And it has Tom Hanks. That's like America's dad. I'm in. And then I kind of stopped for a second. And I was like, uh oh, wait a minute. Not all good books and good stories make good movies. Do you know what I'm saying? Twilight. <laughs> Percy Jackson. <laughs> Sorry, there's something in there. Um, listen, you know what I'm saying? You ever read a book and you're like, oh, this is so good, and they make a movie, and you're like, don't do it. So I, I saw it, and I put it off for a while, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna watch it. And I had to tell myself, even in my like, hesitant nature, I'm gonna do this, don't try to pick it apart. Don't try to understand it. Don't try to meet this with your head. Just, just enjoy the story, because movies are also a great way of telling stories in our culture. It's a wonderful narrative that we use to tell stories, and we get wrapped up into them. And I found myself over a series of lunches over the last two weeks watching like 20-minute clips of this movie at a time and just wrapped into this life and forgetting to process it because my heart was so wrapped up and I couldn't stop thinking about what was behind and what was in this movie. And I thought, man, I just love stories. You ever not cared about the point of a movie? and just been wrapped up into it? The point of the book, doesn't matter, your heart is wrapped up in it. This is the power that stories have on our life. And one of the reasons that I think Jesus used stories so often as his primary way of teaching. This is what he used the most. We call these stories that he uses parables. If you're not familiar with that term, you are familiar with the concept, I promise you, because parables are simply um, an idea where God or Jesus himself uses something very familiar in nature or around him to describe something and explain something that's unfamiliar to people. So he's often trying to explain what the kingdom of God looks like, what the kingdom of heaven looks like, and it always has a pretty clear point, this is what the story's about. Uh, how many of you remember the story of the tortoise and the hare from Aesop's Fables? Okay, cool. The real question is, what's the point of the tortoise and the hare? Okay, slow and steady wins the race, right? You, you remember the point. It's funny we can remember the point of a story like that, and we'll quote that phrase, slow and steady wins the race, without ever referencing the tortoise and the hare, but people will know what you're talking about. Are you with me? Right? Stories have this amazing power to remind us sometimes there is a point, and you've got to lean into that. And Jesus tells stories with points all the time. This is what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks, is little stories that Jesus tells. Sometimes they're only two or three sentences, 
but they hold these huge impacts of how our life could be lived. And I'd like to look at John chapter 12 with you today to explore our first parable and the, about a week before the situation that we're going to read, again, that Bill had read for us, um, some kind of big things happen that you should know about. But one of the biggest is that uh, this is about a week before Jesus is going to, into Jerusalem to go to the cross. So it's near the end of his ministry time here on earth. Near the end of his ministry time, he's at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, some of his best friends, and they throw a huge party in his honor. It's like this huge dinner. They invite everybody who's there. The disciples are there. All the people who follow Jesus are there, and this, they're celebrating him. And at one point, Mary takes this jar of perfume, and, and the jar of perfume, she takes it, and she starts to dump it on Jesus' feet. And I know this is going to sound a little awkward. Sometimes the Bible's filled with awkward things. You just got to recognize it. And she starts to, she starts to wipe his feet with her hair, to anoint his feet, to, to rub off the, the garbage that was on there. And the aroma of this perfume, I just imagine in my head, because it was actually worth about a year's salary. So take whatever you make in a year and just imagine a bottle of perfume that expensive and that dense, that like concentrated. That's what she just dumps. And now the whole house is filled. Now the disciples who are there, they get frustrated and they start to reprimand Mary. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? You can't do that. We could have sold that jar of perfume and then we could have given all the money to the poor. This is such a waste. And I love what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't just listen to it. He kind of, hey, he claps back at him. You ready for this? In John chapter 12, just before the passage that we're gonna read, it says this, and he's referencing Jesus, referring to the disciples, talking right to him. It says, Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus stood up for Mary in this moment, but in doing so, he has once again very clearly told them, my death is upon us. It is coming. It is happening. And at this point, he heads into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover Seder. In verse 20, as he is in Jerusalem, we read, as, as Bill read for us, that there are some Greeks who are in the city. And they, they approach a disciple named Andrew. And I think they approach him because his name kind of matches more of a Greek name for them. And it's like, oh, he's kind of like one of us. And they go to Andrew and they're like, listen, can you get us the hookup with Jesus? Can, can you like, you know, can you be the middleman and get us the invite? And he's like, well, I, I, I don't know. So he goes to his brother. He says to his brother, what do we do? And then they go to Jesus together. But here's what's really important is up to this point, Jesus has not intentionally done ministry with people who are not Jewish, right? The Greeks are not someone that he has reached out to, someone that he's really invested in. And so the fact that, that they're now coming to him, pick this up really quick, that all the Jews in the area with Jesus are always saying the same thing. We want to see another sign. We want to see another sign. And in this last moment, we find that the Greeks are coming and they say, not we want to see another sign. They're saying, we want to see Jesus. Something has shifted in the world. They know who he is. And so when Philip and Andrew come to Jesus, 
and they say, the, the Greeks want to meet with you. They're here. He doesn't invite them in to be like, yeah, let's do it. Instead, he tells a story. He tells a story instead of addressing these people who've come to see him. But he uses this parable to explain where he's at and what's about to happen. It's a simple story with major impact to our lives. In verse 23, we read that Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. This is amazing because Jesus starts out his response to the disciples with a very interesting statement, and, and he says to them, the time has come. The reason this is important for us today is because the disciples for the last three years have been asking Jesus, is the time now for the kingdom of heaven? Like, is it time? Is it time? And do you remember even when his mom was addressing him at his very first miracle when he's turning water into wine and she's like, oh my gosh, listen, you need to do this. And he says to her, like, my time hasn't come yet. He's now declared, this is the time. The time has come. It is now. And he launches into this wheat, a kernel of wheat picture. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. Now, maybe these aren't the terms that you and I would use exactly to describe this, but if we've been through third grade biology here, um, if you've had to plant grass in a plastic cup and wait for it to grow, or had kids who have done that and then somehow expect it to last like forever and want to mow it. You know what I'm talking about here. We've all been through this, that like, this is simple biology. When we hold a single seed of anything in our hand, it can't do anything, can it? It remains alone, is the word that Jesus has. It's, it's alone. It'll never produce anything if it sits in the hand. The only way that it can grow is if you dig a hole, you plant and bury that seed, cover it up. Right? That's how this is going to happen, which is very similar to how we handle when someone takes their last breath and dies. We, we dig a hole, we put them in, and we cover it up, right? So this is imagery that Jesus is using that we can kind of go, oh, okay, I get this, I get this. But he mentioned something that just kind of jumped out at me as I was studying over the last week was, He's like, okay, I know that's how a kernel's planted, but he uses this thing. It's like, unless it's buried and dies. I'm like, wait a minute. With people, they die before you bury them. If not, there's a way bigger issue. But does it work that way with a kernel? Like, I don't get this. I was confused. Why did he have to add that? And like, that's not the way this works. But what's funny is, is the word and dies that he uses here, I, I just was like, um, why does he say this? In the, the Greek, the word that he uses here is actually referring to a very specific way of dying. Isn't that, that uh, we have words that we use for specific ways that people die, and the word 
that Jesus uses here is unless a kernel is buried and is drowned. Died is referring to like being drowned in water here. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Unless a seed is buried, unless it's watered and, and it dies through this. And I was like, wait, how could water, like how does that work, drowning a seed? Well, this is unbelievable. In order for the root of a seed to come out, the kernel has a seed coat, and the seed coat actually has to die and be destroyed. You know, it, it has to die to become something new. And Jesus is awesome when he says, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Did you know that one kernel of wheat, when it's planted and it comes to maturity, it actually produces 50 kernels on its own? That's pretty cool, isn't it? I think any of us would take a deal. If I said to you, I'm going to give you $50 if you just give me a dollar, how many are taking that deal? If you didn't raise your hand, do not go into accounting. Listen, this is not a hard thing, okay, right? The deal is you give up one and then I'll give you 50. We would take that every time, wouldn't we? Every single time. Until the seed that we have to bury is ourselves. Now, we're not so quick to take that deal, are we? I think this is why Jesus uses this illustration right in the middle of some very difficult comments. He uses this story to help say, not to soften what he says, but to help people get it. He says, those who love their life will lose it. And those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. That is a huge statement. And, and what's really wild about this statement is it's not the first time that Jesus has said this to his followers. It's not the first time. He's actually said it before. If you were with us at our Wednesday nights during you know, our CBC, excuse me, CB Summer. This week we were looking at Luke chapter nine together. It was like, it was so cool being able to journey through this passage as a church together on Wednesday night. And it, it's been amazing. If you have missed this, you need to be there on Wednesday. It's so cool. But Jesus says it in Luke chapter nine. We just looked at this. He says, then he said to the crowd, right? He's talking to a lot of people in this situation. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose yourself or you're destroyed? If, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the son of man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the father and of the holy angels. In Luke, this causes a lot of issues and people are frustrated. I have to give up my life for you, Jesus? But I think in John 12, it hits deeper for the disciples because his time has come. He is leaving. Do you remember who asked to see Jesus when we started this passage? Who was it? It was the Greeks. It was the Greeks. It was these Gentiles, these non-Jews. And Jesus responds with, unless a kernel dies, it's all alone. It has to be drowned in water to see new life. Now, in this parable, Jesus is very clearly using himself and using the kernel to represent himself and his death and his resurrection. And he has to die in order to bring new life. 
He has to die so that whoever would place their trust in him, that every person following him from that point on would receive this amazing gift of the, the, the person of the Holy Spirit who would live in us and to live into them, and they would begin now to share his story and his ministry the way that he had already done. You see, unless he dies, they can't be filled and because they're filled, no longer would people have to come from all over the world to Jerusalem to see Jesus. Instead, from Jerusalem, we read in Acts that all disciples of Jesus and followers of Jesus go out to spread the story of Jesus. No longer do people have to come to see him because the disciples are bringing him to the nations. Amen? In order to do this, though, here's the crazy thing for the disciples. If you continue to read how the church started is they had to follow the way of Jesus, which is being willing to give up their lives as well. You see, many of the disciples followed exactly Jesus' pattern, and they did give up their lives. They were martyred, meaning they, they, were, they died for their faith. But can I tell you, there's a whole lot of them that never did. They never died for their faith. Instead, they had to make decisions every day to die to themselves. You see, if they wanted to adhere to Jesus' teachings, which were grounded in love for all people, that it was grounded in this idea that your faith is going to be rooted in love, that's how people are going to know that you're my followers, and you can't just pick who you want to love and, and be like, I kind of like them. You need to love your neighbors as you love yourself. You need to love your enemies. You need to love and to pray for those people who persecute you. You cannot play favorites anymore if you're my followers. Instead, each of these followers had to die to themselves, to die to their own racism, sexism, their pride that they had, that they wanted to treat some people better than others. And Jesus is saying, if you want to do this, you're going to have to die to things every single day that you battle with if you really want to live out a life of love. Yes, some would actually die. They would give up their lives, but most of them would just have to choose every single day a daily death to these sinful desires that they had. I believe that Jesus calls you and I as his followers to the very same lifestyle. This, this might sound odd, but... I wonder how often when we hear these words of Jesus, unless you're willing to give up your life, I wonder how often we go to the extreme and we're thinking, you know, would I die for Jesus? And I have been to different rallies or conferences or whatever. I've, I've even said it from the stage. It's like, are we willing to give up our lives for Christ? It's, can I tell you that? That's, that's a good question. It's, it's not a bad question, but realistically, how many of us are going to be put in a situation where we may literally have to give up our physical life and breath because of our faith. Not many of us. I'm, I'm just being real. Right? Not, not many of us are ever going to be in that situation where we live. But it's easy to give an imaginary answer to something like this. right? It's easy to be bold in something you don't think is ever going to happen. Yeah, I'd do that. Of course I would. I love Jesus. This is great. The harder question for us isn't, would you be willing to give up your life for Jesus? Fine, you can come up with whatever, whatever answer you want for that, but the, the harder questions are the questions like, am I willing to die to myself? 
into my sinful nature every day for the sake of Jesus? Am I willing to take this shell that I have protecting my heart that I think keeps me safe? Am I willing to let that die? Am I willing to to plant that like Jesus, to be buried to myself and pray every day, Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Would you douse me and allow me to die being drowned in you so that you can break through this shell of my heart today, in this moment, right now, I need a Holy Spirit gardening, watering all over me. Am I willing to let that water mix with the oxygen that God has given me? Every breath comes from him. Will I let that willingly change who I am inside and make decisions today, in this moment, to die to what my sinful nature wants, to die to the desires that I have that don't line up with following Jesus, not so that we could say, oh, I live this garbage life, but so that we may truly see life. This, this is what following Jesus is all about. And depending on how you look at that, you could think this is the most defeating thing in the world, and I would never want to do this. That sounds exhausting. Sure, I used to think this way. But the other way to look at this is it's one of the most invigorating, beautiful ways to follow Jesus. This fuels my faith now. Instead of viewing my spiritual journey now as this linear pathway where I've got these moments that are mountaintops and, you know, these valleys and then like the pits, we all have those moments when we're following Jesus, sure. But I I can't see this line and destination like, here it is. I, I just don't see my spiritual life looking this way anymore. It very much looks like a circle to me now. And at the top, there's this option of battling myself because the truth is, I I have to battle my sinful desires, what I want over what God wants every single day. And I wish that I could tell you that I'm victorious over it every day. I wish that I could tell you I make the decision that Jesus would make every day, but I don't. I don't. And because of that, I start here with my battle. And when I actually am able to let the Holy Spirit water the hard parts of my life and my shell that I carry, and he's like, I can bring life in this, and I die to what I want, I begin to see this movement. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I begin to see life in these decisions or major frustrations that reveal other things that I've got to work through. And as I get here and I feel victorious going, Lord, you did something cool. Guess what happens the next day? The same exact thing hits me. (laughs) And I'm stuck in the same situation, the same battle. And instead of looking at my life this way going, I keep battling the same things and I can never deal with this. I've been dealing with the same wrestling matches since I was 16, my journal's filled with it. And guess what? It's gonna happen over and over and over. And every time I choose Jesus, I see life around me. And every time I don't, guess what? God says, I know, I've met you here before. Cool. We could do this again. Let's keep going. We could try again. And I'm willing to live a life of circles for Jesus, growing, 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 and the more I look at it, it's, I feel like it goes deeper and deeper and deeper like a drill into my faith in Christ. I, I just can't look at it this way because I'm never going to get there. But I can grow closer to Jesus one step at a time, one decision each time. It's funny, um, Ryan and I, Ryan who is leading worship today, thank you, Ryan and Amy, for being here today, thank you. We were talking, I think it was last week, we were, we were having a conversation together, 
And um, it was funny, we were talking about Ephesians chapter 5, which is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And we are talking man-to-man about what it means to husband, right? How do we do this? And we were really starting at a place of Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes this command, and he says this to the whole church. This is what I want you to do. In verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we began to try to figure out and clarify together, like, okay, how does this work in marriage? And what's funny is, Paul actually talks about, here's how it works with husbands, with wives, and here's how it works with parenting, here's how it works at work, and and life in general. It's really beautiful what he does with it. But in his address to husbands, he actually says to the husbands, you know, submit to your wives and, 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 you know, love them. Your way of submitting to them will be loving them like Christ loves the church. It's like, okay, who, who he gave up his life for them. It's like, okay, so we should be willing to die for, our, die for our wives. And then Ryan said something that just kind of has stuck with me for two weeks. And uh, if I butcher your statements right here, um, I apologize. You can correct everybody later if you want. But uh, the, I've been revisiting the idea in my head, and I'm not sure what's from you, what's from the Spirit, or what's just cool ideas that kind of made this a moment. But... He said something along the idea, along the lines of the idea of dying, literally giving up your physical life. It seems so heroic and romantic, right? It's what the greatest stories are all about. It's what the movies that we want to watch. It's, there's the sacrificial love. But we, especially men, we want there to be some sort of grand gesture that we can do to show love. Instead, what if God was just calling us to something much different? small daily sacrifices the idea of daily dying to myself and my selfish desires in order to love my wife and family in a christ-like way seems so much less heroic it's so much less romantic but the impact is so much greater sacrifice has to be practiced day to day to day not in this imaginary heroic moment these grand gestures And then in in exhaling, he kind of was shaking his head and almost like whispering to the idea of this grand heroic moment. He just just said, yeah, you'd be willing to die for her, but you can't do the dishes? And and I giggled. Just like you, I giggled. And I was like, that, oh my gosh, that was so good. And I just began to think about it. And I was like, oh, that's good. Until the next day when my wife was working a 12-hour shift nursing and I looked and guess what I saw in the sink? dishes (laughs) dishes dishes are in the sink and i'm like man i hate when god does that puts the practical right in front of me and i'm like i don't i do i submit to my i hate doing dishes i hate doing dishes do i submit to my selfish desire and just say you know what i'll leave them for eileen she doesn't mind it i think she doesn't complain as much as i do at least I don't want to do that. I just really feel like the Spirit was convicting me last night. Maybe I'll ask my kids to do it, because then I don't have to do it, but it still gets done. But that's not really sacrifice, unless they fight me on it. Then it's major sacrifice, and I might sacrifice one of them. I don't want to do that. And so I did it. Here's what's great is that was not the hero moment for me. I actually thought about this will be a blessing to her when she comes home. Hopefully it's not there. 
That was not the dying to my sinful desires, believe it or not. You know when I really had to die to my sinful desires? It was when she got home after a very difficult day. And the kids were fine, I was fine. And she's walking in the kitchen, and she's kind of like getting stuff organized for the next day. And I had to battle the desire to be noticed for doing the dishes. It wasn't doing the dishes. That was one thing, and fine. Will she see that I did this? Will she recognize me? Will she say thank you? Will she do? I had to battle the desire in my heart was to be noticed. That was much harder. And so what I thought was going to be the heroic thing to do wasn't. It wasn't the right battle. That's kind of sad, isn't it? I'm trying to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit of what it means to die daily to myself. And as I walk closer with Jesus, and as I become more intimate in my relationship with him and understand him and listen to the Holy Spirit, I am noticing that oftentimes the things that I think I need to die to are often just symptoms of something a little bit deeper that if I'm going linear, I don't know how to get there, but if I'm going circular, all of a sudden I begin to find a deeper dying to myself of things I never thought were really that big of a deal. And not that they become a big deal, but they reveal things about me that I'm like, oh, that's not conformed to the image of Christ yet. That needs to die. That doesn't mean that following Jesus, if we're going to choose this daily sacrifice, that doesn't mean that life's not going to be fun. That life shouldn't be fun and we should give up all that. No, 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 not that at all. Jesus says very clearly that I have come that you may have life and life to the full, right? When you're dying to yourself, this is producing 50 other kernels, 50 things of life. Sacrificing does not mean giving up who you are. Please hear me on that. When we are sacrificing ourselves, when we are saying, I will, you're looking at the things that you want versus the things that God wants, and there's the battle, not the battle of who am I? Because the more we submit to what Christ wants, the more we become who he has called us to be. This is a beautiful transition. And when we become more like the man and the woman that Christ has called us to be, can I tell you, life is awesome because you're comfortable in your own skin because you know how he's created you and you feel good about that. You should have fun. And it doesn't mean that if you're saying, how do I submit to Christ and to the people around me and die to myself, that that you should have no opinion, that you should have no desires and you should completely submit to each other and that means everyone else's opinion and their desire wins. That's not submission. That is abuse. God has created us very differently. And I am grateful that the desires of my wife are different than my desires because it keeps our family grounded differently. She's grateful my desires are different than her desires because sometimes we need to do some of the things, like, this is good for us, and I feel like I want to do this. And she's like, all right, I'm going to say yes to this because I know this is going to bring some life. And yet we have to do this over and over with each other. But we're allowed to have desires. King David is great in Psalm 37. Verse 4, he says, take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you your heart's desires. You have things that are planted in you that are there from God to be nurtured, to be watered by the Holy Spirit, to bring life. It's not going to match what the people around you desire. Praise God we don't all desire the same exact thing. Amen. Now we have to learn what does mutual submission look like to each other so that we can honor each other, love each other. When our delight is found in the Lord, the desires of our heart are going to reflect what he desires. And desires are absolutely amazing when they are God-driven. 
this is a call for us to now stop and say, okay, well, this parable, Jesus, you say this is about your death, and then you resurrect, and you fill these disciples with your Holy Spirit, and they go wild around the world. Are there areas of my life that don't line up with what you want that I need to die to? Are there areas that don't line up? That I'm maybe finding it's not the dishes, it's the desire to be noticed about the dishes that I need to die to because I don't really feel valuable or I don't feel this. What's underneath what we're thinking and feeling? You see, I picked this passage very specifically today because I will tell you this is an idea that I'm constantly revisiting in my life and I'm trying to look at it personally I'm trying to look at it relationally and even in my role here as a pastor at Crossbridge. I, I'm sure it's no surprise to you that uh, one of my favorite things about pastoring Crossbridge and being a part of this community is the privilege of preaching the word. You let me get away with so much up here. <laughs> I, I really feel like the grace that you extend to me and the trust that we have together, I can say things here that other churches would balk at real quick or be like, thanks, you can leave. We're allowed to say hard things up here. And you give me such a gift in preaching that it fills my soul. When I, when I get to preach, I feel like I come alive. I, I feel like this is what I'm designed to do in life. This is one of the ways that God has wired me and, and the way that he's created me. But I will tell you that there is a battle in my soul at the same time between my selfish desires and God-given desires. Many of you know that at Crossbridge here, we have a preaching team, a team of people who are being trained all the time to how are we presenting the gospel together and huge shout out to to becky who's away on vacation this weekend um jeremy where are you at you're over there jeremy love when you preach pastor will when you bring the word it, like i love sitting under all of you and learning it's such a gift to me i'm humbled but here's can i say where the real battle is i have a desire to see the word of god proclaimed boldly to be proclaimed accurately confidently to anyone and everyone who would be willing to listen to it now, now do i do this because it makes me feel good do i do this lord because i like the recognition or want that do i do i do this because sometimes i'm worried other people can't do it like i can so i i, I need to protect that spot protect that the pulpit and not let do or do i truly desire to see God's word proclaimed to everyone here. That's a hard thing to wrestle through, and even it's a hard thing to say to you right now. I'm just being honest. That feels really vulnerable and awkward to say to you. But even though I love preaching, I knew that this was an area for me that I had to allow death to. Because if I'm not careful, Preaching can quickly become my identity as a pastor. I don't feel good at a lot of things. I love this. So I should do this more often, but then I realize I'm the preacher. That's what I bring to Crossbridge. This is who I am. And God kind of said, maybe it's becoming an idol for you. Oh, I don't like that. I don't want any idol to stand between me and God. And so about 18 months ago, I began asking God very specifically, God, would you, would you reveal a handful of people at Crossbridge who have 
the possibility of being preachers who have the gift of preaching and and, and, I, and I have so many weeks out of a year that I try to preach it. Now, I'm going to give up four of them to step away and say, I'm going to die to those four weeks to intentionally invest time, effort, energy into building that team. That was a weird thing. God, I'm going to die to those. About nine months ago, I quietly kind of started seeing different things in people and pulled away and pulled four people aside and said, hey, listen, would you be interested in being coached in preaching? I see this in you and I just want to offer that to you. Um, I'd be more than happy to help you, but I would like you to, to go through this. And um, some have never preached before, some have preached before, and I don't think any of them understood what I was about to put them through. And here's why is I care so deeply about our church. I love you. And I never, ever, ever want to have the gospel proclaimed and God's words unpacked and it has been unfaithfully parsed and not dwelled, and it's not applicable, it's not transparent, it's not relevant. I, I care so much about this, so I was like, oh, I'm going to get them real ready. And they agreed. And so four of them decided, sure, we'll wake up early on Saturdays to get together with you. We'll pray through different parables that we can preach on. We'll read the books that you've given us. And, and they were stretched. And then I, I, man, the real work began after they picked a passage. Because that's when, uh, that's when I make each person who preaches up here, I, I do, I make this, I, I ask of this, that everybody would submit a manuscript of what you're about to say. Like word for word. Whether you stick to it or not, we can, it's all debatable. But I do this because I do it. And I do this because I need to make sure that the theology that our church is getting is, is correct. That's what's important. This matters. And so I could see the tension in each person. And that's when I started to get the, oh, I don't like this. This is harder than I thought. I don't know what to do with this. And I'm like, oh, yes, welcome to Thursdays for me. Good. And it was like, oh. But over the next four weeks as a church, can I tell you what? We're going to have the privilege of hearing the word of God proclaimed boldly, proclaimed accurately, proclaimed confidently by four different voices. Our church, I believe, is going to be more alive, not because, oh, Jimmy's trying to get out of preaching or he doesn't need this. No, no, I, I need this to understand that I don't have to be the only voice. I need this because... The beauty is, is I know that other churches don't have preaching teams. They don't have people prepared to, to, to speak the word of God boldly. We're going to have like at least eight different people who could do this, who all have messages already ready. They could go to another church and do it. Like, this is crazy. This is life at our church. And so you're going to hear Faithfoot proclaim the gospel. You're going to hear Jeff Seeger proclaim the gospel. You're going to hear Christiana Rochelle proclaim the gospel. And you're going to hear one of our elders, Brett Anderson, Proclaim the gospel. I love their messages. I love their passions. What I love most is how you and I get to sit in the same seat and be watered by the power of the Holy Spirit through the people sitting next to us in church. The Lord has taught me a lot in this. My identity could get wrapped up in this, but guess what? For you and I, there's a lot of things we could die to. What are the choices you get this week that are in front of you? When is the Lord 
this week going to prompt you to hold your tongue instead of saying what you really wanted to? And that's the beginning of your circle. But if I'm not heard, they're going to do something stupid. They might do something stupid anyway, and you won't be heard. And you're going to be frustrated that they didn't hear you, so now they're stupid and deaf. Do you think the response is going to be great when you come back around? I don't. I haven't practiced that at all this week either. Listen, maybe the Lord's asking you to die to the selfish desire of getting that extra hour of sleep. And I, I, this is one I battle. I hate waking up early, but I know that's what I need to be with Jesus because when my day hits, I can't do it. I have to go to bed earlier. Wow, that's sacrifice. It is. What's yours? Maybe it's to your parents. Maybe it's to your siblings. Maybe it it's, has nothing to do with people, but it has everything to do with yourself and to God. Maybe the submission and the selfish thing that you need to die to is not extending yourself the grace that you so desperately deserve because that's what Christ has given to you. This is the sacrifice that Christ has given us at the cross. This is what we remind ourselves every single time we take communion together. In that parable, he says, I have let myself be buried and doused so that there may be new life. We are products of his new life. Amen. We are here alive because of Christ. When we take communion, every week at Crossbridge, we break this bread and we dip it in this cup or we take one of our prepackaged ones and we literally say, I identify with Jesus and I will die to myself for the sake of the world around me. This is what following Jesus is about. It's a simple story, isn't it? Major impact. Would you stand with me this morning as we prepare to take communion? Jesus, in this moment, as we stand before your throne, collectively having seriously and boldly proclaimed, holy is our God, we collectively confess that there are sinful desires that we battle, all of us. We battle them in our home. We battle them at work. We battle them in, in ourselves. Lord, we need a reset today. We need a reminder. We are just not strong enough to do this on our own. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would reveal in this moment areas of our life that even just one area this week, forget this week, one area this afternoon, that you're, call, you're, you're calling us to die to ourself, to honor and to submit to you and to someone else. Lord, would you give us a picture a name, a thought, an image, something in this moment. We will wait.
Jesus, thanks for forgiving us where we've messed up. Thanks for allowing us every week to come to this communion table to say, this is your body, this is your blood, and we desperately need it now. And every time we gather, it is our reset. It's the top of the circle so that we can, we can reorient to you. Jesus, thank you. At Crossbridge, we celebrate an open table for communion, simply meaning that if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you have accepted him as your savior, and your desire is to obey his teachings, then we're called to celebrate together. And there is a table before us where we all come and we come around the table, and we would encourage you to grab one of the prepackaged ones or to break a cracker, dip it, bring it back to your seat, and we will all eat and drink and receive the body of Christ together. Please come. At Passover, Jesus sat with his disciples and he celebrated this great exodus from Egypt every year to remember, to remember that God had rescued them. This is a great reminder that Christ has rescued us, amen? We need rescuing. So does the rest of the world. As we eat and drink this, may we identify with the life of Jesus. May we die to ourselves for his life. Let us eat and drink. Our benediction today comes from Psalm 37. It's a psalm of David. And before I pray this blessing over you, um, just be prepared for next week. Crossbridge is going to look a little bit different. Crossbridge CB Youth is taking over everything. And so if you're like, oh, what's that mean? You might want to come to worship night the night before because it's going to be awesome and feed right into Sunday morning. Um, it's going to be amazing. Psalm 37 King David writes, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they'll soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you 
your heart's desires. May you go dying to yourself and living out his desires. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.